Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss the experience trap and why someone who's been doing their job for 20 or 30 years may be no better and sometimes worse than someone who has very little experience. We look at the shocking truth that 35 years of research reveals separates world-class performers from everyone else. We talk about how talent is overrated, misunderstood, and research says doesn't even exist. We go deep on the critically important concept of deliberate practice and much more with our guest, Jeff Colvin. The Science of Success continues to grow with now more than a million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. Do you want to stay up to date with the latest episodes, tactics, research, inside notes, and more from the show and our guests? We'd like to invite you to receive this exclusive bonus content. It's called Mindset Monday. Each week, we share with you the very best, latest, most actionable research and strategies that have impacted our lives, fire us up, and can be used by you starting now. All you have to do to sign up is to go to our website, successpodcast.com, and enter your email to receive all this and even more great content from us. Again, just visit our website, successpodcast.com, and join our email list. Or text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed how to master the universal skills required to succeed at work. The counterintuitive truth of taking more responsibility for your own mistakes, flaws, and screw-ups, and how that can help you succeed more quickly. We looked at how to cultivate and create accountability in your life, challenge yourself to rise up to a higher level and to become more vulnerable. We talked about the Benjamin Franklin effect and much more with our guest, Pete Mikaitis. If you want to crush it at your job, be sure to listen to that episode. 
Lastly, if you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we're going to talk about in this episode, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to successpodcast.com and hit the show notes button at the top. Today, we have another amazing guest on the show, Jeff Colvin. Jeff is an award-winning speaker, writer, and broadcaster. He holds a degree in economics from Harvard, an MBA from NYU, and is currently the senior editor-at-large for Fortune. He's the best-selling author of several books, including Talent is Overrated, Humans are Underrated, and more. Jeff has delivered over 10,000 broadcasts on the CBS radio network and has been featured on Good Morning America, CNN, CNBC, and many more. Jeff, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you, Matt. I am delighted to be with you. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today to share your wisdom. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your story. Well, it's uh, in some ways a pretty simple and short story. I've been at Fortune magazine for uh, virtually my entire career, doing all kinds of things there, meaning writing, editing, pretty much everything you can do on the editorial side of a magazine. Uh, in addition, I have... Uh, had this sort of long parallel career in radio. You mentioned the CBS stuff. I've been on the radio one way or another since I was in high school and have always loved that. And I do a lot of speaking nowadays on some of the topics we're going to be talking about today and some other ones. And as, as you mentioned, I do write the occasional book. So it's a collection of things that I just happen to like to do. So it's a pretty good gig that I get to do them. So I'd love to start out and, and kind of go deep into the book Talent is Overrated. That was one of my favorite books that I've read in the last five or 10 years. And to start out, tell me about kind of the concept of the experience trap and the idea that for many people who've been doing their job for you know 20 or 30 years, in many cases, and, and, and oftentimes, they're no better off at that job than someone who has just started out or has very little experience. Yeah, it's a big surprise, to, but this effect has now been documented in a number of fields. I mean, wouldn't you think that somebody who's been doing something for a long time would be getting better at it? I mean, in fact, there's a lot of policy uh, that's kind of based on that, right? People get promoted in some organizations still simply because they've been doing something for a long time. And yet, the evidence is pretty clear that is by no means an assurance that people are getting better at it. Uh, in fact, there is evidence that people not only may not get better, in some cases they may get worse. For example, auditors who are supposed to go through financial statements and detect fraud on average were worse after 20 years of experience than somebody who was new at this. Some of the things that surgeons are supposed to do, like predict recovery time, they actually got worse with age. Something similar actually with people who predict whether uh, if you let somebody out of prison, how long will it be before they come back? Their skills get worse with time. And so it's a real surprise, but it's a serious issue because if we're not getting any better, then how are we just by doing stuff, then how are we going to get better? In other words, we all kind of assume that, you know, what makes people good at what they do is a lot of experience doing that. In fact, I often recommend to people what would you tell a little kid, a son or a daughter or niece or nephew, who just said, what makes so-and-so 
so great, whether it's a famous musician or athlete or whoever they might ask you about, if they just ask you what makes them so good, what would you say? And one of the things you'd probably say is, well, they worked hard at it for a long, long time. You know, the truth is that's not a very good explanation, as we've just been describing. People who work really hard at something for a long time and they're wonderful, conscientious people are not necessarily any better. And sometimes they're even worse. So let's dig into a little bit. Why does that happen? And, and why are people's assumptions about experience so flawed? It happens apparently because of something that goes on inside a person's mind while they're working, while we are working. This applies to all of us. <laughs> Excuse me. What researchers have found is that people who outwardly appear to be doing the same thing are not necessarily doing the same thing. And the difference is that some people, while they're doing whatever they may be doing, are thinking, okay, how is this going? How am I doing? How can I be doing this better? And not just generally, how can I be doing it better? Specifically, what part of this job I'm doing right now what part of it should I be focused on improving? The very best performers are constantly doing this. Most people are not constantly doing that. They're just going through the motions. And so one example that comes from the research is people who are uh, working on singing, people taking singing lessons. So you say, well, they're all trying to get better, right? Because uh, they're going to a teacher uh, and taking these lessons. Well, it turns out not. It turns out that people who think of singing as a kind of fun hobby, uh, you know, something that they enjoy doing, they experience the singing lesson as fun, you know, this is this is enjoyable. The people who are professional singers, successful professional singers, experience the singing lesson completely differently to them. This is hard work. It is stressful and exhausting. And it's because they are in in their minds focused on how they can get better, intensely focused. And in fact, it can be exhausting. And the reason this is important is if you observed the two of them, you'd say, well, they're both doing the same thing. You'd say they're both taking a singing lesson. But in fact, they're not doing the same thing. And the difference is in their brains. And before we dive into deliberate practice, which I want to go deep on, tell me about so many people have a flawed perception of the idea of talent and what talent yes. is. How do, yes. you, how do you think about talent and, and why is the common conception of it so wrong? Well, it's a great question. And in fact, part of the experience of researching and writing that book is that I have really changed the way I think about that concept. And I've even changed the way I use the word. In fact, I try not to use the word talent. Because people have many different ideas of what it might mean. Here's, here's the issue. Most of us think of talent as an inborn gift of some kind. I mean, we use the word very broadly and very loosely, but most of us think 
that talent represents some kind of an inborn gift. So-and-so is, you know, really talented at playing tennis and somebody else just really is not talented at playing tennis. And what we're thinking when we say that is that the first person somehow came into this world with a gift, an ability to do something fairly specific, in this case, play tennis, uh, that most of us just don't have. And when you look at Serena Williams or Roger Federer or somebody, and what they're doing seems to be superhuman. It seems to be beyond the capabilities that most of us could even conceive of, then the idea of an inborn gift does kind of make sense. But the reality is that the research is now quite clear that that's not what accounts for great performance. In fact, some of the researchers say that talent in that sense, talent in the sense of a gift that you are born with to do something fairly specific, whether it's play a sport or, you know, fly a jet or lead a group or whatever it may be. The idea of talent as an, an inborn gift to do something fairly specific, that doesn't even exist, some of the researchers say. Now, I decided not to take such an extreme position. That's why I called the book Talent is Overrated and not talent doesn't exist. But in fact, at the very least, it is far less important as an explanation of great performance than other factors, and that's what we're going to get into next. But what I would ask people to do is just stop. Every time you hear yourself saying, so-and-so is really talented, or so-and-so is naturally talented, or so-and-so is a natural-born leader or surgeon or golfer or accountant or whatever. The next time you catch yourself saying that, just stop and say, is that really what I mean? Do I really, do I really believe deep down that so-and-so, do I believe that Tiger Woods came into this world with a fairly specific ability, the ability to play golf, and that he just has it and most of us don't. Is that really what I think? It's a good exercise to go through, and I hope people will at least carry that with them and, and think whenever they use the word talent. So what is the factor that separates these world-class performers from everybody else? Well, the answer is pretty clear, and this is not me giving my opinion. This is 35 years now of good research on exactly this question. Uh, what explains great performance better than anything else is what the researchers call deliberate practice. And that's not what most of us think of when we use the word practice. It has a fairly specific meaning. But whether you're talking about sports or music or business or teaching or anything else, what all of the great performers seem to have in common is this particular specific activity of deliberate practice and, and particularly doing it a lot, doing it a lot every day for years. And so the bottom line here, just to go straight to the bottom line, is that the idea of talent as an innate gift doesn't explain great performance very well. Deliberate practice 
does explain it very well. The good news is you don't need an innate gift. The road to great performance is long and hard. Nobody says it's easy. But the good news is it's available. This is an incredibly liberating message because it says that all of us have at least the ability to be much, much better performers than we are. And if we want to go all the way, we have within certain bounds that all of us may operate within, and we'll get to that. We all have the ability to be actually great performers if we just know how it's done. And this idea of deliberate practice is, in fact, how it's done. Now, should we go into it? Let's go into it. Okay. As I said, it's fairly specifically defined, and it's not what most of us think of when we say we're practicing. So I discovered, for example, that what I do out on the driving range at the golf course is a pathetic example of deliberate practice. It's, it's not even close, and, and this accounts for a lot of the way I play golf, I'm afraid. The specific meaning of deliberate practice is as follows. It is an activity that is designed especially for you at your particular stage of development in doing whatever it is you're doing. So let's let's think of a sport. Uh, people often talk about this in sports. So however good you are right now, specific practice activity is designed for you at this moment. And that means it's going to change because as you get better, the deliberate practice activities are going to have to change to reflect that. Second thing, it is designed to push you just beyond what you can currently do. It doesn't try to push you way beyond what you can currently do because then you're just lost. You have no idea to go after it. And it doesn't allow you to keep operating within your current abilities because then you don't grow. It is constantly pushing you just beyond what you can do. As you get better, of course, it has to be adjusted to keep pushing you just beyond. It can be repeated at high volume. This turns out to be really important. And when the researchers first discovered this, they didn't understand all the reasons why it was really important. They just observed that it really was. But it turns out that doing these practice activities at high volume literally changes the structure of your brain. It causes physical changes in your brain. And specifically, uh, it causes a substance called myelin to form around some of the connections in your brain. And you will even hear people now in the sports world talking about myelin because they want to build it up in the brains of the people they're training. So you, you got to do it at high repetition if you can. And then the final element is continual feedback. You can't get better if you don't know how you're doing. So you need some kind of continual feedback to tell you how you're doing all the time. And then this takes us right back to the beginning, the fact that the deliberate practice activity has to be designed for you. That feedback is going to tell you how you're doing and therefore how the deliberate practice activity needs to be changed. So those are the essential elements. They can be applied in virtually any realm. A couple of things to keep in mind. Deliberate practice is neither work nor play. It's not work in that it's not the actual performance, right? I mean, if you're training at a sport, you're not actually playing a game. It's not exactly work, but it's not play because it's not fun either, right? It's hard. 
And in fact, one of the things that has to be faced about deliberate practice is that for most people, it's really hard because by definition, it means you're going to be failing. You're going to be making mistakes. Because remember, I said one of the elements, and this is really the heart of it, is being constantly pushed just beyond what you can do. Well, if you're being pushed just beyond what you can do, you're trying to do stuff you can't quite do yet. By definition, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. None of us really like making mistakes and failing too much. But that's the essence of deliberate practice, being pushed just beyond so that you're not quite able to do it until eventually you can. And as soon as you can and you've got it solid, then you got to be pushed again just beyond what you can do. That's what it's all about. And it is remarkable to see how this has been applied in all kinds of fields and is being increasingly applied in new fields. Uh, People are realizing what this is all about and how it works and figuring out new ways to use it. Anyway, I'll stop there. But that's the essence of deliberate practice. And that is what characterizes the great performers in pretty much every realm. So after reading Talent is Overrated, and this is one of the things that I spent a lot of time thinking about, how can we, you know, I, I'll ask a specific version of this, but I'm also curious about kind of a, a larger picture as well. You know, you know, yeah. being an investor yeah. and, 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 you know, being in the world of business, I, I thought a lot right. about how can I apply the framework of deliberate practice to something like right. improving my abilities as an investor or as a, as a business person in, in fields where right. there's very long gap between uh, kind yeah. of feedback and ac- yep. action and feedback, how do we leverage yep. those lessons to, to harness the power of deliberate practice? Yep. It's a great question because this comes up in a lot of real world fields. As you say, there's a long gap between what you do and how it turns out. So how, how can you do this? The way it's done and the real way to do it is the way it's been done from the beginning in sports and music and some other realms as well, which is essentially simulation, right? When a team is practicing, a lot of it is conditioning and so forth, but a lot of it is simulation. That is doing stuff that's like the game, except it isn't the game. And the nice thing in investing in business is that there is now software available that enables us to simulate this so that we can speed it up and therefore do it, you know, for example, make investing decisions at high volume. Now, and furthermore, I know of examples where companies have created their own simulations. So, for example, here's a, this is a real life example. A company that makes uh, pharmaceutical products that are what they call biologics. They have to be, they aren't mixed up as chemicals in a vat. They have to be grown. And this is a very hot area of pharmaceuticals now. They have to be grown they're alive, and then they have to be shipped at just the right moment. The difficulty is that they have to be grown, shipped at the right moment, and get to the doctor or hospital that needs them at the right moment. And if they don't get there at the right moment, then their value was lost, and they're, they're no good anymore. And the whole, you know, this is just a lot of money wasted. And the company was having so much trouble getting the stuff produced and shipped on schedule 
that it was failing. In fact, it was in danger of going out of business. And so what they did was created a highly realistic simulation of the production and shipping process where they could compress it. Because when it's in a simulation, you know, I mean, growing some of these things can take weeks. Well, in the simulation, you can, you know, pretend that they were grown in minutes and then go through the whole process of the order processing and the packing and the shipping and so forth. And they created the simulation. They put their people through it repeatedly, then told them, okay, now, you know, reflect. How did you do? And they, and they by the way, they provide, they did everything you're supposed to do in deliberate practice. They provided them a lot of feedback. They had these big re- digital readouts telling them all along the way how they were doing so they could look up and see at any given moment. And then they would stop. The team would talk and say, all right, how can we improve? They came up with ideas. They'd try that. They did it over and over, getting feedback on their own performance. And they went through this for weeks. It saved the company. They figured out new ways to do this, to do the production and shipping, packing and shipping on time. And it it saved the company. Now, that's how it can be done in business. And by the way, in Investing, you know, if it's going to work on on uh, investing decisions, you can get software now that uses huge data sets to simulate how investments are going to do, and you can do it at high volume because you can compress the times. The larger point here, and it's a really, really important point, has to do with highly realistic simulation that is very, very demanding. And I, you know, since I pay a lot of attention to this, obviously, I have been struck by how often this comes up. And so here's my favorite example just recently, uh, the latest example. Just a few days ago, well, there was uh, an article in the New York Times about the University of Connecticut women's basketball team, arguably the most dominant team playing any kind of basketball anywhere because they've gone over a hundred games now without a loss a hundred and some consecutive victories the question is how do they do this it's exactly what i just said highly realistic simulation at a very intense level they simulate games and they work incredibly hard at this and in fact so for example you know they'll practice with a shot the normal shot clock in basketball is 30 seconds They'll practice with a shot clock set at 24 seconds just to make them move faster. And they do this for hours a day, these highly realistic drills that are really, really intense. And one of the players, you know, in explaining how they win all these games said, well, because the real game is easy compared to the practice and What struck me is the very same thing has been said in people in completely different realms. Uh, In the military, for example, uh, the Army got onto this back in the uh, early 90s, highly realistic training, much more realistic than they had ever done before. And so when a tank troop won a huge victory in Operation Desert Storm in 1991, a a battle that's famous among military strategists called the Battle of 73 Easting. Uh, When it was over, they said, you know, this battle, this was easy compared with the training we did. And if you go back even further to when fighter pilots were being trained in the Vietnam War, 
This was a revolution that I uh, describe uh, in a later book. This was a revolution that that be, later became famous as the Top Gun School, but it was new back then when fighter pilots were being trained to go up against uh, the North Vietnamese. And they dramatically improved their success rate, which had been terrible previously. And when the pilots would come back, they would all say the same thing. This was a lot easier than the training we did. So this, you hear people saying almost precisely the same things over and over uh, when they are explaining how tremendously successful they were. They did highly realistic simulation at a very intense level. So that's, that's the big principle to take out of it. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So for the average person listening here that, that may not have the resources to develop, you know, a simulator or a highly realistic training right. simulation, how can they take some of the lessons of the liver practice and build yep. and design a, a practice or training curriculum for themselves yep. that helps them improve? Well, it's obviously that's a great question. And it, of course, depends on exactly what you're doing. One of the things that we can all do is find practice in the activity itself. 
In other words, normally the practice is done separately from the activity. The truth is, in the world of business, we're not generally given too much time to practice. You know, it's funny. We are, we're expected to just go out there and perform uh, every day. It is possible to apply some of these principles in the actual work itself. So, for example, suppose you are in a sales role and you're going in to make a sales call, make a sales presentation. You want to get better at what you're doing. That's the first rule, right? You want to get better at what you're doing, not just go through the motions. And so don't, when you go into the presentation or into the sales call, think about it ahead of time. And don't just think, yeah, I, I want to do this better. Get very specific. What exactly, what, what element of this do I want to focus on today? And it could be anything. You, you know, it could be anything. Let's suppose it's trying to discern what the customer isn't saying, right? What, what's the unspoken desire or unspoken objection or whatever it is that the customer has and it's important, but they're not actually saying it out loud. Okay, that's what I'm going to focus on when I go in. So you go in and then in the midst of doing it, you occasionally sort of step outside yourself and say, all right, how is it going? Am I doing what I came in here to do? Uh, what am I learning? What's happening? Just look at it as if you were outside the situation. And then, really important, afterward, take the time to reflect on this. Say, okay, I went in there trying to discern what the customer wanted but wasn't saying. Now, how did I do? Reflect on it and say, ah, you know what? Now that I think about it, when he said such and such, what he really meant was such and such, but I didn't pick up on it. Now I can see that. Then use that knowledge to iterate what you should be focused on the next time you go in. Now, this has proven to be very effective. It's way more work than most people do when they are going about what they do in their job. So you know, that's way more work than most salespeople do. But the payoff is always worth it. And I emphasize this. In fact, this is something that we find time and again in deliberate practice. It's way more work than most people in a given field are accustomed to doing. And the payoff is always worth it. The payoff is always just a knockout. But most people don't do it. I'm curious in, in the business context, one of the things that I've thought about as, as a possible sort of methodology to leverage the principles of deliberate practice would be looking at things like case studies, like buying a book yes. of case studies and yeah. going through them because you can sort of test your decisions in real time and know the answer and kind of have yeah. that available. But, you know, you can still sort of go through that decision making process. Yeah. And that's a great way to do it. That's another great thing to do. The case method of teaching business is a great method of doing it for just the reasons you say. Because now these cases are available. You can get them online pretty easily. And so they are a source of great value in trying to apply these deliberate practice principles. As long as you're disciplined enough to really make yourself think through and even write out what you think should be done 
at the point in the case where it stops and says, okay, that's all we're going to tell you. You know, you are now the product manager of such and such in this case. What do you do next? If you really stop there and don't just think, but write down so that you can't fool yourself later, write down what you think you would do next. And then if possible, go see what was really done next and what happened. That is a really, really valuable thing to do. I always caution people, though, write down your thoughts, because otherwise, when you read what actually happened, we all have this tendency to say, oh, yeah, I thought that, even though you didn't. So please write it down. That's such an important piece of advice. And and, and in general, the whole field of, you know, decision making, decision journaling and all of that, it, it's so important to write down your thought process because it's so easy to fool yourself after the fact. Yep. Um, it happens over and over. I'm curious, and this is changing gears slightly, but how do you, how do you reconcile or think about the advice, uh, kind of the adage to focus on your strengths with the fundamental conclusions mm -hmm. of, of the results of deliberate practice? Right. Uh, this comes up because it does, in, sometimes it seems to be a real conflict. You know, don't focus on your weaknesses, focus on your strengths. And there's a whole big consulting practice that's been developed around this and so forth. And deliberate practice seems to be saying, focus on your weaknesses, right? Find the things you can't quite do and work on them. I don't think the conflict is what it appears to be. Uh, I think it's a difference in scale. So when they say focus on your strengths, I think what that means is choose something large, large scale where you feel strong, where you have developed success or demonstrated success, where you don't have trouble motivating yourself. Uh, it's something you either like to do or you're really interested or really want to get better at stuff that you, you know, you feel strong doing. But once you've done that, then what makes you great at that thing is absolutely going to be the deliberate practice framework. So, you know, well, Tiger Woods, I don't know if he focused on his strengths. He, he was he was, as you know, he was raised from infancy to be a golfer. But focusing on his weaknesses is what made him the world's greatest golfer. Right. I mean, for some reason, he, at some point in his career, he was not good at hitting out of the sand, something that terrifies amateur golfers. But professional golfers are so good at it generally that they hardly worry about it. Tiger wasn't so great at it. And so he, you know, he had drills that he made up and that his coaches made up to do this. You know, he'd put a dozen golf balls in the sand. Then he'd step on them to bury them. And then he'd practice hitting them out of the sand. You know, and he'd do this over and over and over. Well, you know, that's focusing on your weaknesses. So I guess the bottom line is large scale, focus on your strength. Once you've done that, focus on your weaknesses because that's what's going to make you great. So in essence, use sort of find a field or an area that you're strong in and then use the methodology of deliberate practice itself to improve within that area. That's exactly it. Very well said. That's exactly it. So let's let's transition and, and switch gears a little bit and talk about the book Humans Are Underrated. It's a fascinating yes. conclusion and, and, a, and a really interesting book. Tell me about, you know, when, when I think about 
technology today. And you hear so many news stories about the continual displacement of workers. You look at industries, you know, things like uh, in the future with automated vehicles, autonomous vehicles, things like truck drivers completely potentially being replaced as as an industry. Mm-hmm. With all of mm-hmm. this technical disruption, you know, how, how do you feel about uh, humans and, and the workforce and how people are going to be able to adapt to this? Yeah, this is becoming such a hot topic because we're seeing increasingly what you describe. Technology achieving capabilities so advanced that they can, in some cases, replace human beings entirely. And this question of how will we humans be productive? How will we be economically valuable as technology takes over more and more work, including quite high value work, Uh, you know, work that people have to be educated for many years to do and work that pays very well uh, in medicine, in law, in finance. This is happening already and it's accelerating. How are we people going to be economically valuable? Well, so that was the question that I began with, really the question that you set up there. And so What I concluded after spending a lot of time with the research is that we will be valuable through the skills of deep human interaction, managing the exchanges that take place only between human beings. And this is deep stuff. It's not all rational. A lot of it is emotional. It has to do with sensing what other human beings are thinking and feeling and responding in some appropriate way. Uh, It has to do with being, with working together with other humans. These skills are going to be economically valuable no matter how technology advances, but they are fundamentally different skills than the skills that have traditionally made us economically valuable, because most of those skills have been the kind you can get from a book, the kind you can learn in a classroom, uh, calculus, accounting, engineering, law. Those are still going to be important, but they are increasingly not going to be the skills that make us economically valuable because technology does them at least as well as we do. It's these skills of human interaction, empathy, collaboration, storytelling that are going to make us valuable. I, uh, th- and the evidence is supporting this uh, more every day. Tell me a little bit about some of the, some of the evidence that, that kind of supports that thesis. Uh, well, there are a few things. One, if you just look at what employers are asking for, it's striking that they're saying this is what they want. You know, a survey of big employers said, what do you need most now from your employees? And they've been saying relationship building, co-creativity, brainstorming, cultural sensitivity. It's exactly the group of skills that I was describing. I was talking a while ago with the chief information officer of one of the world's largest retailers. This is a guy who hires hundreds of coders, software writers every year. Now, software writers are practically uh, the stereotype of people you think who don't need human skills, right? Supposedly, they sit in a cubicle and they tap at the keyboard and they write their software. And... 
they that's all they do and the, who cares whether they can interact with another human being well so this cio who hires hundreds of them says it's just the opposite he says i need people who are empathetic and collaborative in these jobs why because they're creating software that other people are going to use they have to be able to feel the experience that they are creating in these users they have to be empathetic and they have to be collaborative because the problems that they face are too hard for any one person to solve alone these problems have to be solved in teams and if they can't collaborate on the problem solving then they're not very useful so what he's saying is the difference between a high value coder and a low value coder is empathy and collaboration skills of deep human interaction and if it's true in software writing it is certainly true in every other realm as well because we all interact much more so how do we how do we cultivate these high value human facing skills and and are they innate or are can they be learned and trained yeah uh it's a good question to ask because most people kind of instinctively feel that they are innate we say all the time so and so is a real people person but it isn't true they can they are skills not traits they are skills they can be trained and they are being trained now in schools medical centers companies uh even armies are training these skills now and it's it's being done in all kinds of ways i mean one of the most striking things is at business schools uh whether it's stanford or harvard or any of the other uh top business schools they have really revolutionized their curricula in the past few years to focus on these skills so first of all everybody works in teams that's been true for quite a few years they force people to work in teams more than that they put them through role playing exercises and it's funny how this connects to talent is overrated it's the same thing highly realistic simulations at an intense level so at stanford business school for example first year students are put in situations where they have to deal with a simulated uh board of directors and those simulated directors are alumni of stanford business school so they really know what they're doing imitating a board of directors or they will put be put in a simulated meeting with venture capitalists and again they're alumni who are venture capitalists so they're really really realistic and the students will be put through this and it's all skills of human interaction it's all the way they handle themselves in these social settings and then they are critiqued afterward they get the feedback necessary in deliberate practice so they will get better so they are skills they are being trained and they are being trained exactly according to the principles of deliberate practice that's how schools are doing it i mentioned that armies are doing it that's a whole story unto itself uh and but i always have to say when it comes to appreciating the new importance of these skills of human interaction 
and when it comes to training those skills, I have not discovered any institution anywhere that is as advanced as the U.S. military. And that surprises a lot of people. That's not what they think of the military as doing, but it is what they're doing because they understand that for them, as well as for businesses, skills of human interaction are becoming more and more crucial as technology does more and more stuff. That's a fascinating conclusion. And I think it's so important. And, you know, we talk a lot about on the show about things like emotional intelligence and yeah. And how to cultivate those kinds of abilities. So it's it's such an important thing to focus on. I agree. And 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 getting more so all the time. Because the technology is advancing with just astonishing speed. And you know, if we're gonna compete against what the software can do, it's obviously a competition we're going to lose. So what you're describing, these sometimes, you know, EQ, emotional intelligence, uh, empathy uh, is becoming a hot word. These are going to be the sources of economic value for more and more of us. So for somebody who's listening to this that, that wants to practically implement some of the conclusions we've talked about today, what would be one simple piece of homework that you would give them as a starting place to use some of these ideas? A couple of things. One, with regard to this most recent point of skills of human interaction, think about how you communicate with people. There's a hierarchy. Uh, at one end is in-person, face-to-face conversation. Then we go down the hierarchy with uh, a video call below that, a telephone call below that, uh, email below that, texting below that, and think, okay, can I go up a level in communicating with the person I'm about to communicate with? All right. Can I call them? And will they answer the call? But can I call them rather than text or email? Could I video call them? Could I even go to their room or office or wherever they are and speak to them in person, face to face and try to just first of all, observe what your instincts are and then say, could I go up higher on the hierarchy in communicating with them? And the reason I say that is that each step up on the hierarchy is a richer form of communication and you will develop skills that you will not otherwise develop by going as high on the scale as you can, by communicating in the richest possible way available to you. And we are all developing this tendency to go low on the hierarchy because it's fast and it's easy and convenient. And sometimes it's the only way. But always ask yourself, could I go up higher? And try to have the richest form of communication you can. That's really a good way to help develop these human skills as a, you know, as a real simple initial step. The other thought is what I was describing earlier about the person going into the sales call or the sales presentation. Do that yourself in whatever kind of activity is relevant for you. You know, it depends on what field you're in and what your objectives are. But before going into a situation, do this before, during, and after thinking that I described. What do I want to work on before? How's it going while you're doing it? And then reflection afterward, how did it go and what could I, should I have done 
better. You can apply this to anything and it will really open your eyes. For listeners who want to learn more, where can people find you and your books online? Well, thank you for asking that. The answer is uh, the easiest place to find it all is jeffcolvin.com. But I always have to say on a podcast, I spell Jeff the English way. So it's G-E-O-F-F. Colvin is C-O-L-V-I-N, jeffcolvin.com. You can get all the books there and uh, articles and other stuff as well. The books, of course, are all easily available at Amazon or any place else you want to look. Well, we'll make sure to include all of those links and links to the books in our show notes. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing all of this wisdom. I'm a huge fan of uh, Talent is Overrated and the whole concept of deliberate practice. I'm so glad we got to go deep into that topic today. Well, me too. And thank you very much for asking about it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps more and more people discover the science of success. We'd like to invite you to receive exclusive bonus content from us and our guests. It's called Mindset Monday. Each week, we share with you the very best, latest, most actionable research and strategies that have impacted our lives, fired us up, and can be used by you starting today. All you have to do to get this is to sign up for our email list. Just visit our website, successpodcast.com, and join the email list. Or text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. Lastly, if you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we talked about in this episode, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to successpodcast.com and hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 